What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. When I'm talking about poor, I mean really poor. We had no electricity, no hot water. Salvation Army delivered some Christmas presents. I clearly remember that. We had nothing, absolutely nothing. If you were a 13-year-old girl or 14-year-old girl and you weren't going to school, sex was definitely going to be on the agenda and it was a normal thing. And I will carry on talking about teenage pregnancies. I'll carry on talking about the fact that women are raped on, in a daily situation and can't tell anybody about it because they'd be outcast from this society. And I will carry on talking about those things and I will carry on making art about those things until it changes. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. I'm the guest host for this How I Found My Voice live podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared and recorded in front of an audience at London's The Light Venue as part of the Politics Live podcast festival. Welcome to you all. Now, these podcasts go behind the perceived personality of a well-known celebrity to find out how they came to find their voice, from pivotal moments in childhood to an abiding interest in a particular art form and what ultimately shaped their career. Do please comment on social media using the hashtag IQ2. My guest is Tracy Emin, a contemporary artist whose work, once encountered, is hard to forget, whatever you think about it. She gained fame, some would say notoriety, with two pieces, Everyone I've Ever Slept With, 1963 to 1995, a tent with the names of everyone she's ever slept with, 102 people during that period. Names, appliqued, embroidered on the tent. They included her grandmother, her brother, friends, two numbered fetuses denoting her abortion, just in case you think that it's a piece only about sex. The other work is called My Bed and was part of her exhibition when she was shortlisted for the Turner Prize. A dishevelled bed, dirty sheets, dirty knickers, other sexual detritus, including discarded condoms. To say her work divides opinion would be an understatement, but it is her consistency and her consistent return to personal experience and personal pain that makes her an artist with a remarkably 
distinctive voice and one who is always worth engaging with. Her art ranges across a variety of forms, drawing, painting, video, photography, sculpture, neon and needlework. She's currently a professor of drawing at the Royal Academy and her latest exhibition, A Fortnight of Tears, is on at the White Cube Gallery in Bermondsey. It's an intensely beautiful, poignant and raw exhibition, an effort to commune once again with her past. Tracy Emin, a very warm welcome. Let's go to that past straight away and early childhood. You're a twin. Tell us about your relationship with your brother and you growing up with somebody that you were very close to. Well, for anybody who is a twin, you know it's very, very different from just having a brother or a sister because when we were little, we had our own language, we were very telepathic, incredibly close, but at school, we were made to sit next to each other for the first, I don't know, like five years, sit next to each other, sit next to each other at dinner, sit next to each other, and, and it, was, it was too much, really, I think. I'm closer to my brother now than I ever have been in my life, and we're very, very different. We left school when we were very young. Paul stopped going to school when he was about 11, and I stopped going when I was about 13. When, when you talk about the, the, the language that you shared, what, what was that? What, how did you communicate? Is it possible to, to articulate it now or not at all? No, because I've forgotten it. It's the kind of thing only twins know about. And I think it's because you're communicating in the womb. What's interesting about being a twin is that my mum didn't know she was having twins until she was seven months pregnant. Wow, that's unusual. Well, no, it was 1963... She didn't want to be pregnant in the first place, and she was just coping with the idea of one. And then when she found out it was two, she was kind of really shocked and frightened. She was 36, she was married. My dad was married, but not to each other. My dad is Turkish Cypriot, but my great-great-grandfather come from the Sudan, so my dad is really, really dark-skinned. They were both married to other people. And in the 60s, my mum was spat on, you know, in the street. She was derided for being in a relationship and not having an affair. And then she suddenly found herself, you know, pregnant. And then pregnant with twins. How much of the, the vilification that she endured made an impact on you? Did you find yourself having to defend her if she was berated in any way, given the period of time in which she was having this affair with this man? Well, no. To me, my mum and dad were never having an affair. It, to me, that was normal, that my dad was with us three days a week and three days with his wife, and then we were said one day somewhere else. To me, that was normal. It was only when I got to school and people started getting... Parents were getting divorced... But I realised that this wasn't a normal way of living. So, and so, I don't know. For me, the, uh, dis having this dysfunctional family and coming from an unusual background, for me, has only defined my independence and my strengths. And I don't really think normal exists anywhere. Even if you have, the, like, the most perfect-looking family, you know, someone's being fucked by a dog somewhere. You know, there's always something happening behind a cupboard. When you talk about the, the shared language that you had, I mean, you didn't, you didn't start speaking. You were a bit of a late bloomer. When did you start speaking? And what, was your, what were your first words? No, actually, I, 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 was, I was normal age when I started speaking, but the first words I said was, look, Apple. And then I didn't say anything else for about another six months. So I, it was kind of quite profound. It wasn't like a simple thing that a, a tiny toddler should, you know, a baby should say. It was a little bit more advanced than mama and dada or whatever. But um, no, I was, um, this sounds so conceited, but when I was tiny, I was a big thinker. 
Why do you think that sounds conceited, first of all? Because I mean, you, a lot you clearly believe that you, you were having really interesting thoughts. Yeah, when I was from about three, I could think, think. I used to think a lot. And I know that because I remember what I used to think about. And it was kind of not, not things that children should really think about. I don't know. More poetic. What about the way in which you responded to, you know, you talk about what's normal in your own family, but you clearly had a very deep connection with, as most children do, with their mothers and their fathers. But because your father was only present for part of the week, I wonder the extent to which that closeness developed and how that changed as you were growing up. Well, it, it changed a lot when my dad really wasn't around at all. My mum and dad split up when I was about seven, and it really affected my mum deeply, mainly because we were left, you know, kind of a, a, a reversal of fortunes. We were incredibly wealthy, and then we were incredibly poor in the matter of a few days, literally. So my mum went from owning a hotel and lots of property to actually then working in one, like almost overnight. We were all ready to go to private school, and then we went to the school across the road. You know, there was all this kind of things that were a shock, not too much, too much to our... Actually, I quite... I remember, I kind of liked it. I liked what happened, because I felt normal, wherever normal is. But we, we had to go and live, live in the staff... What we called the staff cottage. We squatted in it for seven years. My mum used to go and collect lead from roofs. So we had money and stuff like that. When I'm talking about poor, I mean really poor. We had no electricity. Salvation Army delivered some Christmas presents. I clearly remember that. We had nothing, absolutely nothing. No hot water. It wasn't good. So I think with, with that kind of stuff, as I grew up, my determination not to be poor or to be comfortable or to be warm or to, you know, be able to keep the electric on, be able to keep the heating on, have hot water constantly. Those were the kind of things that I really deeply desired in life. Even when you were at, very, at a very young age because you'd experienced that, that No, but I, was still carried, I still carried on experiencing loads of bad stuff. I was homeless when I was 16 for about a year and a half. I mean, loads of, like, really not very nice things happened to me. And, and did you think then how you might be able to be more comfortable? Did you have in your head a voice that said, well, I can do this and this is how I'm going to have a house and running water and, and, and electricity and so on? It wasn't. I'm talking about the electricity and running water like as a metaphor as well, going back to normal, whatever normal is. You know, going to school in the morning and, get, and wash it standing up in a small bowl with a, with a kettle of hot water isn't thrilling. It's not good. You know when you go to school, you're different from the other kids. And inside me, I had a determination that I wanted to change that within myself, but I didn't know what it was. And I, and I loved art, always did art, but I left school at 13, so I was never going to do anything academically. And I was talking about this yesterday. In Niagara Falls, there's a museum, and the museum has... Part of it is about the barrel rollers, and the barrel rollers would roll down the Niagara Falls in a barrel, and if they got it right, they would survive. And obviously, if they got it wrong, the barrel would be smashed to pieces and they'd die. But these people were at their last ebb in their life. They'd either gone there for the gold rush or, you know, one, one woman was a school teacher and everything had gone terribly wrong for her. And she, she said she had a choice. It was either prostitution or barrel rolling, you know. <laughs> and she went down in the barrel and she survived. 
You know, another guy went down with his dog. His dog survived, but he didn't. You know, and there's all these amazing stories. And I always think about my life as a bit like one of the barrel rollers. You know, for me, it was like, all I know is art. This is all I can do. I have to make this work. Were there teachers at school that encouraged you before you went to art school? Yeah. So I left school when I was 13. And by law, I had to go back when I was 15. Otherwise, my mum would have been in a lot of trouble. And I went back for about four months. And I did art every single day. I did art and drama. And, and then the subjects that I had to do, which was English and maths, just like basic English and maths. But my art teacher was at Mrs. Morris. She was absolutely fantastic. And I remember holding, her holding up my paintings and going, look at these faces she's painting. They're like Picasso. That's incredible. How, yeah. did that, how did that make you feel at the time? I mean, how much did you know about an artist like Picasso? When we was at school, we had to learn about living artists. And the living artist that we did at that time was Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein. And in fact, I had a really, really good art teacher, you know, and at my school, King Ethelbert's in Birchington, they have, even now, they have a fantastic art department. I visited it a few, quite a few years ago. They have a photography area, this, that. It's really, really good. And for a school where people weren't, my school, you weren't expected, you didn't do A-levels, you did CSEs. You come, you left that school, you got a job at Rovex Factory, or you got a job at Butlins, or you got a job in, a, in Chambermaiden or whatever. It was a seaside mm. town. Mm. You were not expected to go to university. Well, growing up in Margate, when you outlined the kind of hardship from, from going from being comfortable to hardship, in amidst all of that, you suffered terrible trauma. You were raped as an adolescent, and, and life in Margate was very, very problematic for you. I wonder whether you saw it as, as even the promiscuity that you engaged in as a very young teenager, whether you saw that as anything but normal at the time. Part of my promiscuity was uh, the people I was sleeping with weren't boys at school. They were men. They were 25, 24, 26. I was 14. It's absolutely against the law. So it doesn't matter how promiscuous I was. It doesn't matter how much I wanted it. They shouldn't have been doing it. But if we were going to have an IQ test, I would win hands down. <laughs> So, you know, it was, it, you know, even though they were much older, were they? You know, what had they gone through? How had they lived? I'm not defending them at all, but I'm saying it wasn't as cut and dry as what people would imagine or what people would think. In Margate, there's loads of places where you can fuck. It's, it's like amazing. There's greens, there's the beaches, there's this, there's that. There's like, there's hundreds, there were hundreds and hundreds of guest houses where it was like £1.75 a room. You know, you could go and have sex almost anywhere. It lent itself to that. And Margate is, has a lot of fecundity. It's very sexy. It's kind of a really sensual place. So if you were a 13 year old girl, 14 year old girl, and you weren't going to school, and you, you grew up really, you were grown up very quickly sex was definitely going to be on the agenda and it was a normal thing and lots of girls my age had sex and my mum she put me on the pill when I was 14 because she really didn't want me to get pregnant because a lot of girls my age were getting pregnant and that area of England had one, had one of the highest rates of teenage pregnancy and I support a lot of um, safe houses and charities for single teenage mums and things so, and it's still very rife down there I, I wonder how 
how, given the complexity of the relationships that you've just defined, I wonder how powerful you felt about your body, for a start. Well, this is the complicated thing. I thought I was in control. I thought I was powerful. But of course I wasn't. I couldn't be. It was impossible. These were men. I was a girl. If I'd have been having some kind of fondling behind the bicycle shed at school and it was experimental and it was growing up and it's what we all do, but it wasn't like that. It was full-blown, hardcore sex. But I also had this philosophical thing that it was part of like um, a rites to passage, like it was part of my journey. And I, and I often say that um, I fucked everybody good in Margate so I could leave as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going back now, so let's see what happens as I return. So, yeah. When, when, so Outline for us a turning point in your life, because getting into art school completely shifted an awful lot of what you had experienced before that. What, how did that come about, and, and how important was it for you? Were you conscious about how important it was for you? When I was 15, I moved to London, and I lived with a friend. I moved with a hodl, and in my hodl I had some clothes and free David Bowie albums, and I got a job in Oxford Street at Sasha Shoe Shop, and, and then I sort of take, changed different jobs. I got a job in um, Kensington Market. And I met quite a lot of bohemian people. And I ended up sort of staying in a squat around the corner from here in Warren Street. And all of these people who lived in this squat all either went to the Royal College of Art, doing an MA, painting fashion or whatever, or St. Martin's. I loved art. And I loved fashion. And I loved everything creative. And I thought, I'm, I want to go to art school. I want to go to university. But kind of impossible when you've only got three CSEs, you know, art, drama and English, I think that's all I had. And, um, you know, no A-levels, nothing. And then when I'd had enough of, like, just sleeping around in London and, and just having nowhere, I went back home to Margate to find out that there was no home in Margate. There wasn't, my mum didn't, my mum wasn't there. And so I lived in a DHS bed and breakfast, you know, like a kind of homeless place for homeless people and it was all men in this place and I remember having, the bar, having a bath there and I remember really scrubbing the bath before I got in it everything was it wasn't like it was dirty dirty I didn't really didn't want to be there and I had this little box room that was about just enough room for a bed and there was a little sink and I had a kettle and I lived off pot noodle and I had food tokens from the doll and I was like 17 which is, again, very, very young to be in that situation. Again, I thought, this has got to change. Social services, like, have kept an eye on me and that kind of thing, but I was too old for them then. But I was being ordered to keep going to the work experience centre, job, job centre and everything. And I went, and I said to them, I want to go to university, and I want to do either art or drama. And they said, well, you can't, because you haven't got any A-levels, and you've got to do this. And I said, what can I do? And they said, you can get a job at Rovex, which was the toy train factory, or Butlins. So I chose Butlins, and I started my new job at Butlins, working the industrial dishwasher, and I lasted, I think, about 40 seconds, my first load. <laughs> and I just said... And I walked away, and the people said, where are you going? I said, I'm just going. And I walked out, and I went back to the job centre, and I said, I want to go to art school. They said, well, you can't. And I got the addresses, Medway College of Design, this place, that place, and then I applied for a foundation course on my own, and I got an interview, and I went, and I took my portfolio, and I got in on the foundation course, and they said, leave your certificates with the secretary. And I said, what's the certificates? And they said, you're, you know, you're... 
exam certificates. And I said, I haven't got any. And they said, well, don't worry, you can post them. And I had to tell the truth. I said, I don't have any. And then they looked at my portfolio again, and then they looked at um, the clothes that I was wearing that I'd made, every stitch myself. And they said, look, you can't do a degree or a foundation course or anything, but you can do a BTEC course in fashion where you do it for two years and you'll probably get a much better job and everything than what you would now. So I did that. I lasted a year and a half doing that and I couldn't take it at all because I knew in my heart I didn't want to become like a top pattern cutter for Jaeger. It was never going to happen. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to do painting. So I started working just in the foundation course there. And then I heard... Joe Strummer talking on the radio, talking about a place called Sir John Cass School of Art. And if you were poor, you could do a foundation course there for one pound a year. You just queued up, showed them your portfolio on a certain day, and then they'd accept you if your work was good enough. And I did that and got in. I was there for a year, and then I got in to do a degree. What was it in your head? How do you account for that determination in your head that was saying, I want to be an artist, that made you go back when people said, you can't? I'd worked out, by the time I was about 18 or 19, I worked out there was nothing else I could possibly do. And like all my, any of my friends know, I'm, I'm quite bright in some ways, but so stupid in other ways. Like, there are so many things that I cannot do. I just can't do them. I'm just, I just don't have the academic tools. It's just not possible. So as I was getting older, I was becoming more and more aware of this. I don't know where the inner determination come from, and I think that is down to a kind of faith or something. What kind of art did you make then? What kind of art was in your portfolio and what kind of art did you make at art school? Well, I had a boyfriend at the time called Billy Childish mm -hmm. and Billy and I were totally in love with German expressionism and I used to make lots and lots of woodcuts and lino cuts and kind of quite erotic images as well. And I was totally influenced by Kate Kollwitz and Edvard Munch, Egon Schiele. Same influences now, nothing's changed. <laughs> And um, yeah, that's what my work looked like, sort of very hardcore, black and white woodcuts. And was it personal then? Yep, completely personal. What, what sorts of things were you making that then went on to influence the, the, the work that we know that you're known for? Well, I used to do lots and lots of self-portraits. Um, when I was at Maidstone, in the first year, you have to have a corridor show called The Corridor Show, and then all of the college can, can comment on what you've done. And I did all these really, really giant black and white paintings on paper of myself with just wearing a bra with no knickers on, drinking a pot of tea, looking in a mirror. And, uh, and the feminists went crazy and demanded that I tear them down. And my argument was, but this is all about being a woman. This is about my space. You know, this is about what I've done. But what I'm saying is, even then, I was making these kind of provocative um, images of myself and myself as a woman. Did, did you sense that you were a pioneer in some way? I was always pretty radical. So at Maidstone College of Art, I was the social, uh, social secretary of the student union for the whole time I was there, or two years. I like, worked with the student union in the first year, and then in the last two years, I was social secretary. And I was kind of quite outspoken and had a real big presence in the college. Were there women who influenced you? Because you mentioned Munch and Sheila. And... 
I just wondered whether... I just said Kate okay, yeah. Kate people who did personal work, Louise Bourgeois, people like well, that. Well, no, I didn't know about... I didn't know about Frida Kahlo, for example, until after I left the Royal College of Art. Don't tell me why or how, but these things happen. <laughs> and Louise, I didn't know until... I didn't know anything about until 1996. When, when Stuart Morgan, the art critic, I was very good friends with him, he said to me, you'd love my friend Louise. And he used to talk about his friend Louise in New York. And I thought Louise must be about the same age as me. And it was only later that I realised that Louise was like, um, you know, sort of 70 years older than me. So, so when you were making provocative work that was upsetting the, the feminists, I, I wonder to what extent you were discovering your own voice when it came to the kind of feminism and the kind of way you wanted to project yourself as a woman. Was that a conscious thing that was happening to you as an artist when you were practising at, at art school? When we were at Maidstone, everything was taught with a Marxist doctrine. And it was really good. It was really hardcore, really political. On our lectures, I always say to people, we, it, we were even taught the golden section with a Marxist doctrine, you know? <laughs> and we used to have our, our, our lectures on a Wednesday afternoon, and we had the women from Greenham Common come in and give a lecture. We had the miners come in and give a lecture. And this is, instead of having an history, art history lecture, we had the miners come in who were on strike then until, you know, like... I mean, the Kent miners lasted longer than anybody else, and they came in and they said to us, you're next. <laughs> and what they meant was, like, you know, they're closing us down, they're going to close you down. And lo and behold, Maidstone did get closed down. But I always think it's possibly because we had someone from Sinn Féin come in and give a lecture, which was back then, in like 1985 or something, was really radical, I mean, really extreme. Given how personal your art is, I, I wonder to what extent you see yourself as, as a political artist as well, because so much of feminism talks about the personal being political. I wonder if you see yourself in that mould or whether you see yourself as a political artist because your work is personal. Well, well it's, it's interesting. I haven't made much political work, literally political work. The big, a lot of political, body of political work that I made was, was about Britain going into Iraq, which I was completely... It was so hideous. I had to make work about it, and I made some work about that, and really big blankets and things. One of the big blankets said, you know, it's with the American flag, and it said, don't try to sell me your fucking fear, because that's what I believed that the whole Iraq situation was about, selling fear to the rest of the world, and everybody fell for it. It was just, should never have happened. So I made some political work like that, but as on the whole, of course I do not make political art. I never have, and I never will, because my politics are so personal. But yet now, because of Me Too, Time Out, because women have, got a, um, have been given now a clear qualified voice to speak and people are taking women's issues now far more seriously I'm taken a lot more seriously like say 10 years ago people would consider me to be moaning banging on talking about rape again talking about abortion again well I'm, I will carry on talking about it again and again and again and I will carry on talking about teenage pregnancies and I will c carry on talking about how women are shamed for, for having an abortion or not giving the right counselling I'll carry on talking about the fact that women are raped on, in a daily situation and can't tell anybody about it because they'll be outcast from this society I will carry on saying right now as we're all sitting here there's a woman probably or a girl just down the road locked in a cupboard and she's only allowed out to be fucked up the arse or clean the floor 
and I will carry on talking about those things, and I will carry on making art about those things until it changes. But this isn't because I'm political. This is because I'm a humanitarian, and I know these things are wrong, and everybody should be doing things like the sex slavery that's going on, you know, is... Ah, if you're a member of Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch and you know about this stuff, it is unbelievable. So it isn't about being political, it's about being what we should be, to be humans and helping one another. And if people now start thinking my work is political, then they're just way behind the times of understanding what is right and what is wrong. I, I wonder also about the impact on your, your own voice when you are doggedly doing this revisiting sites of trauma of your own life. I wonder how much that has changed. So when you were in your 20s and you were looking back at trauma as a teenager, how is it different now you're in your 50s? That's a really good, really, really, really good question because it shouldn't affect me. It should go over me. I should be numb to it because I keep going, returning back to it, returning back to it. I should be over it by now. But it's like, it's like the horror of life you know, sometimes I remember things that I, I really don't want to remember and they come back into my mind so strongly that I have to deal with them either literally, literally like as a subject, but more often it comes out subconsciously and that's how I deal with it. Like how you have a dream or a nightmare that reoccurs, something like that. If anyone's seen my show at White Cube, there's a couple of really like hardcore ugly pictures there you know that no one's going to say is a beautiful image and that's because the title of one of them is they pinned me down while he fucked me and and the other one is this is another this is this is another hell about somebody who when I was 13 was making me give them a blowjob that I didn't want to do and they kicked me and banged my head against the wall and I said to them this is hell and they grabbed me by the hair, dragged me down the stairs and held my face this far away from a fire and said to me no this is hell. So I make work about those things, I revisit those things, I talk about those things hoping that by, by bringing, in a cathartic way bringing them out they'll go away but actually they don't go away. I get stronger towards them because I don't have to deal with the shame. I said about this, I plaster the shame all across the walls. Let those people who did it to me, let them deal with the shame. That's such a powerful way of viewing it, but I also wonder about the connection that it makes with the audience because your work continues to resonate with people even though it's your personal experience. And it seems to me that this latest exhibition is, is somewhat different because although it's still personal it's about your parents and how much you miss them and and the, and the weight of the trauma the two paintings that you've you've described just there I, I i wonder about how much how much you have always believed that these stories that happened to you would they're resonate not, first of all they're not stories I don't okay mean, i don't mean them in the way that no they're fiction. but no but exactly the fact that you're a woman and you sit there and you refer to this as a story shows how wrong it is these are events in my life that i'm having to deal with and luckily i'm an artist so i meant I in the way that the paints paintings tell stories i didn't mean it was a made-up thing or a fictionalized no, account of your life it just still sounds very, very condescending and, and not, not as weighted as what the event of my life was. And, and back to the exhibition as well at the moment. It's called A Fortnight of Tears. It isn't just about my parents' death or my mum's death. It's about me crying and what I've had to deal with in my life. 
That's what the exhibition's about. It isn't just about lose, losing my mum and dad. When people go into what I call the ashes room, which is about my mum, you know, a lot of people have lost their mother, and they feel that, and that resonates with them. It's not just me. It's a language that everybody understands or will understand at some point. Over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, you've, you've learned about other artists and that the influence on... I want to talk about the influence of people like Munk and Sheila because they appear in this particular exhibition also as though they are not, not so much ghosts, but they are there, they're present in your art. Describe for me why these artists really matter to you, why they speak to you. I think Munk and Egan Schiller have something in common, that they were not afraid to deliver their emotions, and they're men as well. To be like a 30-year-old man in like 1890, and to be painting a painting called, you know, Jealousy, it was kind of quite out there. It made, him, made Edvard Munk vulnerable. And Edvard Munch never really had relationships. Egon Schiele did, though. He was married, and, you know, he was kind of... Um, and he died... Egon Schiele died when he was 28. Munch died when he was um, uh, 80, 84. And so they're both very different in a lot of ways, but yet they use their work, you know... To, but Van Gogh did that as well. How much does it matter to you that people started to take you seriously because you seem like a person who is just doggedly going to determinedly pursue what you want to pursue. How much does it matter that people started to say, okay, we now take Tracy Emin seriously? I think the serious thing is like, I'm not going away. So they've got a choice. They either put up with me or ignore me. I don't care if they ignore me, but I'm not going away. I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing. And I've been doing it now for 30 years. So, and I'm going to just be doing it more and more and more. And as for not being taken seriously, oh my God, they were right. They shouldn't have taken me seriously. 20 years ago or whatever, why would they take me seriously? They didn't need to take me seriously. I was like out there young, you know, having a really good time, partying, drinking, being drunk on TV. Who would want to take me seriously? I might have been taking me seriously. They didn't have to. There was eno there's enough time. I've got another 30 years to be taken seriously. And I'm working towards that slowly, picking it up. I love what I do so much. And my art, to me, I will say this, is my lover, my children, my parents now, everything. Art always looks after me and cradles me and makes me safe and makes me secure, makes me who I am. And it's my vocation. It's not like what I do for a living. It's not a career. It's who I am. It is me. And I'm so lucky to understand that and know that. And as I get older, that is what I will be taking more seriously because you shouldn't abuse what loves you. You should really cherish it. about this this idea that that it is everything for you and you talked just a while ago about the the fact that these things happened to you however long ago they happened the pain is still there and it's present in the way in which you depict it in your in your work does it ever feel better does the voice that was raging and angry in your head is it calmer does it feel more peaceful 
No, because you've expressed it in the painting? No, I think, I think well, well, the bit of me that's calmer and peaceful is because I really love what I do. And so every day I can get up and be excited about what I do. But I think, well, I've still got a lot. I've got a hell of a lot of anger inside me. And that anger comes out in my work, literally, physically. One of the things that I'm really scared of as I get older is not being physically well enough to paint or do things. Because I'm about this studio in Margate is really big. It's 30,000 square feet. And I want to have, I just want to put a, like a boiler suit on and get buckets of paint and running up and down ladders and going crazy and just like insane, like a wild banshee, you know, just going mad painting. And of course, I see, imagine myself doing that. But will I be able to do that when I'm 80? Will I be able to do that when I'm 90? Probably not. So for me now, one of my biggest fears is time running out. How much can I get done in so much? I haven't got that much time anymore. I've got more questions, but I'm going to open it up to the floor. Are there any microphones? Yes, there are. I want to talk about self-belief and your inner self-belief and whether there's a light bulb moment when you first realised that you believed in what you were going to do. In 1997, I had a show at the South London Gallery. And um, I was quite old, you know, I was like 34. I got a mini cab, got out the mini cab. It was a really big queue going down the street. So I thought, oh, have I got the time wrong? You know, I'm always late for everything. I was thinking, oh, it must be closed. The gallery must be closed. They haven't opened yet. Maybe, yeah, and maybe the clocks have gone back. Something's happened, you know. And then when as I came up, I re and walked into the gallery. The reason why there was this really long queue was it was people queuing to get in because there was too many people in the gallery. There wasn't people had to wait. And then I walked in and there was all this like bang, 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 all these cameras flashing and everything. And I went, oh, I thought, oh, I've arrived. You know, this is it. <laughs> oh, this is interesting. And I was kind of like pinching myself and really, 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 really so happy that all these people that were there looking at my work. But that's when I thought, well, maybe I can really do this. Maybe it's going to work. Thank you. Hi, Tracy. Some of my favorite art is um, people that uh, create very personal art. And I myself write and tend to write very personal things. But I've struggled a lot with thinking, who cares? Why does it matter? Who is ever going to be interested about it? And I wondered, because of the very personal art you've made, if you've ever struggled with these kind of thoughts that maybe no one would care. My show at White Cube, I think today is about 81,000 people have visited it. That's my answer. People <laughs> do care. And when I started off, I didn't care if no one cared. It was for me. It comes through me first, then it goes out into the world, and then it lives out there. You have to believe in what you're doing and understand there's a reason for it. And it isn't narcissistic. That was another thing I used to get all the time that I was a narcissistic artist. The fact that I have the belief and, and the fact to carry on and I believe in what I'm doing there, it serves... So if it saves my life, one person's life, then I'm doing the right thing. Hi there. What colour is your living room and is there an artistic or a technical reason for it? <laughs> what what, what colour is, is my your living room? Living room. Yes. This is a really good question. It's um, like Farrow and Ball... <laughs> Farron and Ball, cooking apple, like a kind of cooking apple green colour. And it's a very soft green. 
and I've got like a champagne sort of carpet and I've got a Persian rug over the top and I have a Victorian, not Victorian, like um, late Georgian, one of the first three-piece suites in the Oriental style and I have a big ornate gold mirror over the top of a Victorian fireplace but I live in a Georgian house and all the colours in my house are very soft and muted and relaxing and gentle. And as you can tell, interiors and my environment is really important to me. I can't live in ugly spaces. I can't be in ugly spaces that are my own. I have to create an environment, like a whole thing, for me to be able to do what I do. I've got one final one, because I'm sure there are, there are other artists in the room. We've had questions from, from a couple. What, what would you say to young artists who are struggling in finding their own voice? main thing I'd say to any student that's, or anybody that wants to go to university that says they can't afford the fees, I say to them, you don't have to pay them back. Go and do it. Just see what happens. If you haven't got the money, you haven't got a job, you don't have to pay it back. Just get the education, get the degree. Otherwise, you're already beaten. They've already beaten you. The system's already got you. Go and get the education, then work out what you're going to do about paying it back. By the way, I think the fees are diabolical and it should be scrapped. I think education should be for everybody and I think it should be a priority in this country because if we don't have education and people aren't educated or have a chance everywhere has a chance to go to university, we're going to fail as, as a nation, full stop. We're already failing, aren't we? That's my first advice. The next thing is try and get a job as something you like doing. So if you like clothes, get a job in a clothes shop. If you like food or you like cooking or whatever, try and get a job in a restaurant. If you like books, try and get a job in a bookshop. Don't go and get a job that you don't like doing because it will really, really grind you down. And as far as being an artist is concerned with a gallery... Don't just try and get a show at a gallery. Find out whether the gallery is good. Treat the gallery like a mirror. When you look in a mirror, you want to see what you like looking at. Your gallery is going to be your mirror. It's going to present your work out into the world. It's going to show the world what kind of artist you are. So don't just desperately try and get a show anywhere. You can wait. Tracy Emin, thank you so much for sharing with us how you found your voice. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared and the producer was Farah Jasset. If you enjoyed it, please support us by telling your friends and rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think and it helps others to find the show. Thank you all very much for coming and for your questions. Tracy, thank you very much indeed. doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.